We're in 1 John 2, starting with verse 8 this morning. 1 John 2, 8 says, Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past, and the true light now shineth. New commandment. Though love was spoken of previously in Scripture, it was not fully manifested, nor could be truly comprehended until the coming of God's only begotten Son. That which makes John's commandment new is directly related to the divine love that led to Christ laying down his life for the brethren. It was this extension and depth of love whereby one would be willing to die for others' sins that revealed the true essence of love. John fifteen thirteen says, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. It was not family that Jesus laid down his life for, but friends. One could perhaps fathom dying for those we have blood relationship with, like children and other close family members. Yet Jesus died for the ungodly, strangers, those who were aliens to God. Life is the most precious thing a man has. In fact, it is all he really has and is his most precious possession. To give it up is to give up all that one has. It therefore is this manner of love, of being willing to lay down our lives for the brethren, if not unto death, then surely in life, that set those who claim relationship with the Son of God are commanded to walk in. Barnes on 1 John 2.8 says, Which thing is true in him, in the Lord Jesus, that is, which commandment or law of love was illustrated in him or was manifested by him in his contact with his disciples, that which was most prominent in him was this very love which he enjoined on all his followers. End quote. The darkness is past, and the true light now shineth. The light that now shines is Jesus Christ and the love he manifested in the world. This divine light can still be felt in those who have been given Christ's own nature and in the form of the Holy Spirit. Once a man is baptized by the Son of God and filled with the Spirit, then Christ's divine nature remains in the world, purposed also to fulfill his own great commission. 1 John 2, 9. He that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. There is no man who abides in the light by abiding in Christ and his love that hateth his brother. Hate blinds. It does not enlighten. Ultimately, if it is not love that motivates religious movement and love also that manifests itself towards the holy brethren, then religion is false and the profession of possessing the true faith is counterfeit. This teaches us that a mere claim of walking in the light does not mean that a man is actually doing so. It is also not uncommon among sinners to outwardly lie as to their true relationship with God, where a profession of relationship with God is stated, yet no true obedience to his divine law is desired. Men are liars, and nowhere is this visible more than when sinners claim acceptance by God though their lives evidence everything contrary to divine law. Romans 3, 4 says, God forbid, yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged.
Nowhere also is maintaining a false profession of God more tolerated than in God's church. Therefore, sadly, merely claiming one is a Christian is enough for most people to be accepted as one. Barnes says of 1 John 2, 9, And hateth his brother. The word brother seems here to refer to those who profess the same religion. The word is indeed sometimes used in a larger sense, but the reference here appears to be that which is properly brotherly love among Christians. Is in darkness even till now. That is, he cannot have true religion unless he has love to the brethren. This command to love one another was one of the most solemn and earnest which Christ ever enjoined. John fifteen seventeen. He made it the special badge of discipleship, or that by which his followers were to be everywhere known. John thirteen thirty five, and it is therefore impossible to have any true religion without love to those who are sincerely and truly his followers. If a man has not that, he is in deep darkness, whatever else he may have on the whole subject of religion. Compare the notes at First Thessalonians four nine. But as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. End quote. In true Christian religion, there is no substitute for love. It is heralded as greater than even faith and hope. Love is what God is, and none can claim true relationship with him who do not possess it. Hence, neither wisdom, nor stature, nor position, nor religious importance can take the place of the only true mark of belonging to Christ. Love is that which led Jesus on earth, and as such, all that are called to heaven through him will manifest this same love. Because of their proximity to the Master, those saved by the Son of God will manifest the same love as him. By love we know that a man has passed from death unto life, and if a man has not divine love in himself, then he is certain to remain in spiritual death. 1 John 3.14 We know that we have passed from death unto life, because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. 1 John 2.10 He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. When a man with sincerity and genuineness loves his brother, then it is confirmed and certain that he abides in God's light and is a true child of God. God is love, and there is not any true abiding in his light that lacks walking in his love. Since love is what constitutes God's very own nature, then men are foolish to believe that they have any true connection to him if they lack the very essence of his own being. Yet if love is absent, then it is certain, and should not be reasoned otherwise, that no true knowledge of God is either held or possessed. The base, then, of any true knowledge of God must include the possession of love. If a man has not this, he is not a Christian, and is still wholly ignorant of God's true nature and character. 1 John 4, 8 He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. None occasion of stumbling in him. If a man truly loves both God and those born of him, then there is little in life that will cause him to stumble. Ultimately, if motivated by love, love will prove to be that stabilizing force that keeps men walking in God's will for their life. By pursuing love, 
sin is avoided, and no ill will can be done to our neighbor. He then, who truly loves, will neither create a stumbling block to himself in his own spiritual walk, nor will he be a stumbling block to other Christians in theirs. Romans 13.10 Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Ellicott on Romans 13.10 says, Fulfilling of the law. The form of the Greek word implies not only that love helps a man to fulfill the law, but that in the fact of the presence of love in his heart, the law is actually fulfilled. End quote. So great is the divine commandment to love that when men walk in it, practice it daily, and pursue its expansion in their lives, then this fulfills God's will for their life. Love is the fulfilling of divine law. This is why if a man truly desires to do God's will in his life, then he should pursue walking in the very nature God is. Thus, if it is truly love that rules a man, forms his character, and is the underlying force behind all his decisions, then it is not timidity but boldness that will fill him when Christ returns to judge the world. 1 John 4.17 Here is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. Barnes on 4.17 That we may have boldness in the day of judgment, by the influence of love in delivering us from the fear of the wrath to come. The idea is that he who has true love to God will have nothing to fear in the day of judgment and may even approach the awful tribunal where he is to receive the sentence which shall determine his everlasting destiny without alarm. End quote. Practically, there is no fear in love as its divine presence drives out not only the fear of man, but all fear of God as well. The greatest shame then that men will have at Christ's judgment is if they disobeyed his expressive and very clear commandment to love. Hence, it will not be merely sin that sinners will have to give an account of when in Christ's presence, but also why no true love was found in them, teaching us that if love is Christ's greatest commandment, then to break his will for man is the greatest sin of all. 1 John 2.11 But he that hateth his brother is in darkness. And walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. This truth the apostle states with undeniable clarity. By this it is meant that those who hate possess absolutely no affinity to light whatsoever, and as such have no closeness, resemblance, or association with either God or Jesus Christ, God's Son. Not only do those who hate the brethren both live and walk in darkness, but a further result of their sin is that they have no true compass by which to govern their own lives. Proverbs 4.19 says, The way of the wicked is as darkness. They know not at what they stumble. Where a wise and truly religious man can sin and see the error of his way, there is no light to give the wicked such perception. Hate, therefore, so blinds a man's soul that all ability to navigate properly is lost. And even when sin is causing destruction, it cannot be seen nor recognized for the true villain it is. The sinner, then, is blind to not only God and his light, 
but also equally as blind to any true wisdom for how to live his own life properly. The pulpit commentary on Proverbs 4.19, the expression, they know not at what they stumble, carries with it the idea that they are so ignorant that they neither know wickedness as wickedness, nor do they apprehend the destruction which it involves. Sins, however great and detestable they may be, are looked upon as trivial or as not sins at all when men get accustomed to them. End quote. If evil is perceived as light, then darkness will encompass a man's entire soul. Matthew 6.23 says, But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? Vincent's Word Study says, Seeing falsely is worse than blindness. A man who is too dim-sighted to discern the road from the ditch may feel which is which. But if the ditch appears manifestly to him to be the road, and the road to be the ditch, what shall become of him? False seeing is unseeing on the negative side of blindness. End quote. Who also can really be saved if they view hate as a form of enlightenment? Second Corinthians eleven fourteen, and no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. With all deception, and especially so in the spiritual realm, there is an illusion that light is being followed, teaching us that the darkest men often view themselves as the most enlightened men. Many a man also has ignorantly believed he is following God when in fact it was only Satan's deception that created such an illusion. For darkness, and especially so with hate, to operate and keep their influence in the world, they must portray themselves as light. Hence, the more evil something or someone is, then the more they will try and deceive others that they are actually good. This is also why to determine one's true character, it is fruit that should be examined and not merely the words men speak about themselves. Barnes on 2 Corinthians 14. For Satan himself is transformed. That is, he who is an apostate angel, who is malignant and wicked, who is the prince of evil, assumes the appearance of a holy angel. Paul assumes this as an indisputable and admitted truth without attempting to prove it and without referring to any particular instances. Probably he had it in his eye causes where Satan put on false and delusive appearances for the purpose of deceiving or where he assumed the appearance of great sanctity and reverence for the authority of God. Such instances occurred in the temptation of our first parents, Genesis 3, 1 through 6, and in the temptation of the Savior in Matthew 4. The phrase, an angel of light, means a pure and holy angel, light being the emblem of purity and holiness. Such are all the angels that dwell in heaven. And the idea is, that Satan assumes such a form as to appear to be such an angel. Learn here, one, his power. He can assume such an aspect as he pleases. He can dissemble and appear to be eminently pious. He is the prince of duplicity as well as of wickedness, and it is the consummation of bad power for an individual to be able to assume any character which he pleases. Two, his art. 
He has long practiced in deceitful arts. For 6,000 years, he has been practicing the art of delusion, and with it, him, it is perfect. Three, we are not to suppose that all that appears to be piety is piety. Some of the most plausible appearances of piety are assumed by Satan and his ministers. None ever professed a profounder regard for the authority of God than Satan did when he tempted the Savior. And if the prince of wickedness can appear to be an angel of light, we are not to be surprised if those who have the blackest hearts appear to be people of the most eminent piety. Four, we should be on our guard. We should not listen to suggestions merely because they appear to come from a pious man, nor because they seem to be prompted by the regard to the will of God. We may be always sure that if we are to be tempted, it will be by someone having a great appearance of virtue and religion. Five, we are not to expect that Satan will appear to a man to be as bad as he is. He never shows himself openly to be a spirit of pure wickedness or black and abominable in his character or full of evil and hateful. He would thus defeat himself. It is for this reason that wicked people do not believe that there is such a being as Satan, though continually under his influence and led captive by him at his will. Yet they neither see him nor the chains which lead them, nor are they willing to believe in the existence of the one or the other. End quote. Understanding that Satan transforms himself as an angel of light, it is easy to see why those led by him think themselves as of the light. 1 John 2, 12-14 I run unto you children, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write unto you fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you little children, because you have known the father. I have written unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abideth in you, and ye have overcome the wicked one. Not only does the Holy Spirit convict believers of personal sin, but it also guides them in areas of discernment whereby true light can be seen, even as false light exposed. Because the Holy Spirit is itself light, it can detect and identify where darkness is only parading as light. Discerning of spirits is also that spiritual ability and gift of the Spirit that enables those saved by Christ to detect not only the true workings of the Holy Spirit, but all other deceptive and erring spirits aimed at leading people away from God. 1 John 2.20 But ye have an unction from the Holy One, and you know all things. Barnes on this, but ye have an unction from the Holy One. The apostle in this verse evidently intends to say that he had no apprehension in regard to those whom he wrote, that they would thus apostatize and bring dishonor on their religion. They had been so anointed by the Holy Spirit that they understood the true nature of religion, and it might be confidently expected that they would persevere. The word unction or anointing, charisma, means properly something rubbed in or ointed, oil for anointing, ointment. Then it means an anointing. The allusion is to the anointing of kings and priests, 
or their inauguration or coronation. And the idea seems to have been that the oil thus used was emblematic of the gifts and graces of the Holy Spirit as qualifying them for the discharge of the duties of their office. Christians in the New Testament are described as kings and priests, Revelation as royal priesthood in 1 Peter, and hence they're represented as anointed or as endowed with those graces of the spirit of which anointing was the emblem. The phrase, the Holy One, refers here, doubtless, to the Holy Spirit, that spirit whose influences are imparted to the people of God, to enlighten, to sanctify, and to comfort them in their trials. Their particular reference here is to the influence of the Spirit as giving them clear and just views of the nature of religion, and thus securing them from error and apostasy. And you know all things, that is, all things which it is essential that you should know on the subject of religion. The meaning cannot be that they knew all things pertaining to history, to science, to literature, and to the arts, but that under the influences of the Holy Spirit, they had been made so thoroughly acquainted with the truths and duties of the Christian religion that they might be regarded as safe from the danger or fatal error. The same may be said of all true Christians now, that they are so taught by the Spirit of God that they have a practical acquaintance with what religion is and with what it requires and are secure from falling into fatal error. End quote. 1 John 2.15 Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Where previously the apostle warned of the danger of hate, now it is ever-present danger of loving the world and those things in it. He who loves the world cannot, in any true measure or sense, love God. And he who loves God must forsake any love or affection he might have for the world. It is thus clearly stated and should not be debated that all love for the world practically nullifies any true love for the Heavenly Father. This world is corrupt. Therefore, a love for it reveals that there is no true affection for God's holiness. Where the flesh craves carnal, earthly, and material things, the spirit loves, cherishes, and holds in the highest regard spiritual, heavenly, and eternal things. It is here that the children of God and the children of this world are distinguished and can be easily separated as to what nature rules them. Therefore, just as saints love God and will forsake the world for him, those who love the world will similarly forsake God for the world. It is thus practically impossible to love the world and at the same time love God, since they are at their core completely in opposition one to another. Barnes on 1 John 2.15 If any man love the world. If, in this sense, a person loves the world, it shows that he has no true religion, that is, if characteristically he loves the world as his portion and lives for that, if it is the ruling principle of his life to gain and enjoy that, it shows that his heart has never been renewed and that he has no part with the children of God. End quote. Ultimately, if a man seeks to be a friend of this world, he has positioned himself as God's enemy. To be a friend of the world is to align oneself with it. James 4.4 4 says, 
Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Barnes on James 4.4 Is enmity with God? Is, in fact, hostility against God, since that world is arrayed against him? It neither obeys his laws, submits to his claims, nor seeks to honor him. To love that world is, therefore, to be arrayed against God, and the spirit which would lead us to this is, in fact, a spirit of hostility to God. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world, whoever he may be, whether in the church or out of it, the fact of being a member of a church makes no difference in this respect, for it is as easy to be a friend of the world in the church as out of it. The phrase, whosoever will, implies purpose, intention, design. It supposes that the heart is set on it, or that there is a deliberate purpose to seek the friendship of the world. It refers to that strong desire, which often exists even among professing Christians, to secure the friendship of the world, to copy its fashions and vanities, to enjoy its pleasures, and to share its pastimes and its friendships is the enemy of God. This is a most solemn declaration and one of fearful import in its bearing on many who are members of the church. It settles the point that anyone, no matter what his professions, who is characteristically a friend of the world, cannot be a true Christian. End quote. 1 John 2.16 For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. Lust of the flesh. The Greek word for lust is 1939. <laughs> Epithumia. Strong's defines it as desire, passionate, longing, lust. By this it is meant that in the unsaved there is a great longing to satisfy not God, but the fallen nature of self. Since the flesh is what the unsaved are, and nothing more than this, then it shall be to their own desires and appetites that they shall seek to live their lives by. Lust of the eyes. It was the lust of the eyes that led to Eve's sin when she saw the tree was good for food, pleasant to the eye, and desired to make one wise. There is much sin and rebellion that begins with the eye and then expands itself to be pursued by the entire body. Many a man also has looked upon something with lust and then pursued it, which led him totally away from God and God's will for his life. Pride of life. There is nothing so dangerous that can prevent salvation than pride. There is nothing the Lord detests more than it. It was this that led to Satan's fall, and countless men have followed him. If there is one thing the devil is, it is that he is proud. And if there is one thing he seeks to promote above all other things, it is that pride is good and not evil. Pride is also that deadly sin that the one true God seeks to hide from men, simply because if most get a true taste of it, it will be so valued that it will be chosen even over God. Job thirty-three fourteen through 17 says, For God speaketh once, yea, twice, yet man perceiveth it not. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falleth upon men, in slumberings upon the bed, 
Then he openeth the ears of men and sealeth their instruction, that he may withdraw man from his purpose and hide pride from man. Independence and trust in self is an evil thing, and those led by pride seek nothing more than to be wholly independent of the Lord. At the core of all pride is also an inward desire to be worshipped as God. This is what Satan desired, and so will all those who follow his sinful example. The nature that a man is, is what ultimately determines both his appetites and passions. For those born of the flesh, it shall be to this lower form of nature that they seek to gain satisfaction, reason for living, and enjoyment of life. The scripture states that to be carnally minded is death, which means that to put both governed and ruled by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, has no other end than the grave and final separation from all things eternal. Romans 8, 6, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Barnes on Romans 8, 6, For to be carnally minded, the minding of the flesh, the sense is that to follow the inclinations of the flesh or the corrupt propensities of our nature leads us to condemnation and death. The expression is one of great energy and shows that it not only leads to death or leads to misery, but that it is death itself. There is a woe and condemnation in the very act and purpose of being supremely devoted to the corrupt passions. Its only tendency is condemnation and despair." End quote. Practically, it makes no difference what is loved in the world, whether it is fame, sport, wealth, leisure, influence, or other worldly attraction, simply because all that comprises this world has not its true source in God, nor that which forms his own holy character. 1 John 2.17 And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. What a man does and how he lives and what he cherishes ultimately determines his destiny. This life and how men choose to live it means everything in reference to obtaining the life to come. It is therefore only those who doeth the will of God that God has promised that they shall abideth forever. This teaches us that None shall enter heaven who did not, above all other pursuits and desires, seek to comply with and obey the will of God revealed to them. Sin is temporary, and though it sprouts, blooms, and has its day, it quickly fades and passes away. Of this, God's word is certain, that the wicked shall perish, and the only righteous have the hope of living forever. Obedience to an eternal God has as its reward sharing in the same spiritual life as God's. Yet to merely hear God's will is vastly inferior to actually doing it. This is why a profession of faith is not enough unless there is actual obedience to what has been heard. For then any to be truly saved by the Lord, God's will must be done and not merely heard. James two eighteen through 26. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. 
Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well, the devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when we, he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought in his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. There is no truth so relevant today than that which reveals that faith without works cannot save a man, simply because true faith in God will always result in becoming obedient to his will. This is what is seen in Abraham, who is labeled as the father of all who believe, even as it will be evidenced in all who truly believe upon Christ today. True faith, therefore, will always produce a desire to do God's will and not simply be content with merely hearing it. 1 John 2.18 Little children, it is the last time, and as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. The phrase, the last time, makes no such determination as to the length of time that needs to be completed before Christ's appearance. Sufficient it is to know that both antichrists and the antichrist shall come before the revealing of the Son of God to the world. The message that John seeks to make his readers aware of is that forces against the Son of God would appear and oppose him in preparing for Christ's own appearance to the earth. Matthew Henry on 1 John 2.18 Every man is an antichrist who denies the person or any of the offices of Christ. And in denying the Son, he denies the Father also and has no part in his favor while he rejects his great salvation. End quote. It is important for men to know that to reject Christ's lordship is by itself a form of antichrist. Hence, to not submit to Christ's rule reveals a rejection of his government and resistance to the overall authority God has given his son. It is God's right to transfer authority to whom he wills, and his will is that his son shall reign forever.